This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Um, how did everybody sleep? Okay, ask me how I slept. Not good. <laughs> Where's the brother that asked the question about the, the, the awareness of the divinity for, in it, for the Messiah expectations? That's you. Okay, thank you very much. Four o'clock this morning, I woke up in deep conviction that I didn't know the answer to that question. Okay. I mean, it's like the Holy Spirit is like, pow, pow, pow. You know, and what I realized was I'm the, per- I'm the perfect paradigm of how not to be, right? How not to do it. And what I realized from your question was, and I'm just teasing you, abuse is my love language. Um, <laughs> what I realized was I had done what I told you not to do, and that is I had just let someone else do my homework for me. And I had accepted the, the basic assumption or the basic idea that, you know, the, in, in the first century, there are lots of expectations of the Messiah and no one agrees. And I sort of moved on and I never done my homework. So I got up at four o'clock this morning and I did my homework. So let me tell you what the first century messianic expectation was uh, in a nutshell. Of course, it ends up, it, it's, it is what all those other people said, but now I know why they said it. So uh, the, the middle of the expectation is that he's a David, Davidic king. That's the, that's the, I don't know if, if that's the 90% position, but most, most of the scholars say that's the expectation. Uh, and you see this in the Gospels, right? There's a lot of talk about David and Jesus. There's a little trick question that Jesus does in Mark 12. If, you know, if he's David's son, how can David call him Lord? You know, when people are asking Jesus trick questions to get him in trouble, he, he, answer, he asks them that question in, in Mark 12 and they all shut up and leave him alone. Uh, so he's a Davidic king, which is uh, from Isaiah 9. I got the Bible verses for you. Isaiah uh, 9, verses 6 and 7. He's this branch in Isaiah 11. Uh, but he's going to come and restore David's kingdom. That's basically uh, the 90%. But there are other strands of sort of messianism. Um, one is um, that he's a, he's a priest. So there's also an expectation of a Levitical Messiah, And that comes from a passage which is actually my mentor's, one of his favorite passages, which is Numbers 25. And it's a a horrible, gross story. Remember Phineas? Phineas, uh, a lot of people don't realize in the first century Judaism, Phineas was almost as big a hero as Abraham was. We've lost sight of that. But uh, he's the only other person in the Old Testament of whom it is said, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay? But you remember what we did? There's two Israelites fornicating on the front steps of the temple, and he takes a javelin and stabs through both of them. That's Numbers 25. You'll probably hear a lot of children's sermons on that story. <laughs> <laughs> Numbers 25, 10 through 13. And it was credited to him. Uh, Cosby and Zimri were the two people that got stabbed. And, uh, but what happens is a promise is given to him of an eternal priesthood. And so there's this, there, so there, this idea that he's a priest, or that he's a king, and he's the son of David, the descendant of David, and there's also the idea that uh, he's a priest. Uh, son of man from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, is also a strain of messianism. 
in the first century. He's divine, but he's not really God. He has a divine origin. In Judaism, there, the, no one thought the Messiah was going to be God, because God is one, right? I mean, that's the Shema. So that was one of the stumbling, and, and remains the stumbling block in Judaism uh, for accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Um, but it, interesting, as I, there's, I've got two or three more titles here. Interesting, there are different strands in Judaism, but Jesus brings them all together. He's all those things. He's priest and a king, and he's the son of man. Uh, another uh, thread of messianism in, from Isaiah 42 is that he's going to be a servant. The Messiah, when he comes, will be a servant. And that's the bruised, reed, smoldering wick uh, passage. But never a suffering servant. And you, you see that disconnect when, when, with Peter. When Jesus, Peter says, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, you're going to suffer, Peter goes, oh, never, that's never going to happen to you. He, he knows what the Pharisees teach. And Messiah's... Messiah is never going to surrender. That's a good sermon. Never going to surrender, never going to serve, never going to suffer. Those three things Messiah will never do in, uh, in Judaism. Uh, he's a prophet. It's another thread. And from, and he's, most particularly, he's the Deuteronomy 18 prophet like Moses. Uh, and that's a very big theme in John. John, the other gospels aren't really interested in that, but John is very interested in the fact that Jesus is the prophet. And you'll see them asking John the Baptist in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? I'm just a voice in the wilderness kind of thing. But the, 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 the defining characteristic of the prophet likened to Moses from Deuteronomy 18 is that, like Moses, he only says what God tells him to say. That's the prophet likened to Moses. And what does Jesus say in John? I'm only say, I only say what the Father gives me. I'm only doing what I see the Father do. So... Uh, so Jesus is, so he's the king, he's the priest, he's the son of man, son of God, he's the servant, he's the prophet, uh, and just a couple more, he's, he's the deliverer, that's Isaiah, uh, that's nine chapters in Isaiah. Um, um, uh, he's the shepherd, that's Ezekiel 34, uh, he gathers God's people together. So here's the conclusion, this is about 4.30. Uh, he's rooted in the first century, this is what the Jews were looking for. He's rooted, it's rooted in David, Davidic. Uh, Craig Evans, who's a great New Testament scholar, says, and, 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 and the, the idea of a Davidic king is that he's going to restore the kingdom, which means he's going to overthrow the Romans. That's what he's going to do. And that, I said that earlier. You know, he, the Messiah kills the Romans. He doesn't die for the Romans. That makes no sense to a first century Jewish mind. So he's, he's a Davidic king. Uh, Davidic Messiah was the, and that's also Mark Strauss, who is another scholar that I have a huge admiration for. Uh, so the, the conclusion is what I said yesterday, <laughs> except now I know why I said it. There's no one clear vision. Uh, and it's just, like I said, also, it's very fragmented. Nobody agrees on anything. Nobody agrees with the, who the Messiah is. So there's a, uh, the, the, the Samaritans taught that there's two Messiahs. How about that? You know, so a lot of confusion. Uh, so remember that, that fragmented time. What's consistent is there is a messianic hope. And, uh, and so there's your, uh, there's your answer. You're welcome. <laughs> As if I wasn't having enough trouble being, being cranky. Uh. Okay. Uh, before we start in chapter one, there's another, there's another piece that I just want to give you very quickly. And, uh, and I don't know if you're as interested in this as I am, 
but this idea of the trajectory of, of Jesus' ministry, I just think that's, we, we need to get this. So I got a sort of a preliminary one that I want to give to you uh, from Luke. Uh, just four or five phases. And again, you know, we just have this, in Sunday school voice, we have this idea that it's just one thing, and he, he and his disciples just sort of trip through the countryside, and they're butterflies, and he says nice things. It's way more complicated than that. So let me give you uh, a, 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 some phases. I've got f- six phases. The first phase is the beginning. We're going to uh, look at that tonight, probably. And the, the, the ministry of Jesus in all the Gospels, it always begins with John the Baptist, it always starts with John, right? Even in Mark, that's so abbreviated. It always starts with John the Baptist. So it begins with John. He relocates to Capernaum, and he calls a core of, of the disciples, right? The core, James, Peter, James, John, Andrew. Uh, during this early phase, he goes through villages, and he heals, and he preaches. And halfway through this phase, he, has Matt, he adds Matthew, which was not a really good idea, but... You know, it starts getting sideways when he calls Matthew and starts hanging out at his house with all the sinners. That doesn't go over well either, does it? Does it? Uh, the band of followers grows, and in, in uh, 6, he designates his apostles, the 12 apostles, which is a very interesting word. It comes from the Hebrew word sheliach, which means to be sent. It, really, it's, it was originally a word that uh, they applied to a ship, a ship that gets sent someplace. So, so he, he designates his apostles and, uh, and he gives them their, his authority. Okay, that's phase one. I call that the beginning. Phase two, I call, um, <coughs> excuse me, a difficult indoctrination. You can tell I was going to stick this in a book somewhere. Difficult indoctrination. And it begins with Jesus introducing the disciples to the paradoxical nature of his ministry. And that's that a passage that I couldn't find the other day that has the word paradox. Haven't we seen remarkable things? And so Luke provides the, the first fruits of this unorthodox uh, approach that Jesus has. And that's the, the centurion in chapter 7. Uh, John the Baptist is portrayed as stumbling over the scandal of, of the Messiah, of who Jesus is. And he fails to meet people's expectations. Uh, so you can see, here's the trajectory. Kind of zoom, and then it starts to do this. Um, uh, even though John you know, is doubting Jesus, Jesus still affirms John, uh, which I think is so like him. There's, you know, people born of women, there's been nobody like John. He's, you know, he's important. Uh, then the, the next fruit of his ministry is the sinful woman in, in Luke 7. And, uh, and in, in Luke 8, Jesus tells a parable, 8 verses 5 through 8. He tells a parable which the disciples fail to understand. So phase two is, is this sort of difficult indoctrination. It's not, not going to be a bed of roses following Jesus. It's going to cost you everything. He's going to do things and say things that you don't understand. Right? But you've got to learn to trust him. Just like now. Just like now. Okay, phase three, uncertain headway and rising opposition. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe my blood sugar was low when I came up with these titles. They, they sound kind of presumptuous or pompous, but there you go. So uncertain headway and rising opposition. 
Uh, and this is when Jesus' mother and brothers come to take him away. That's from Mark 3. But it's also in, in Luke 8. But Luke, Luke tells you his mother and brothers are there, but he doesn't tell, tell you why. Mark tells you why. They think he's out of his mind. Okay, so this uh, uncertain headway and rising opposition begins with his mother kind of losing, I won't say she lost faith in him, but she was concerned that he wasn't eating. He wasn't eating. Okay. Um, after that, he calms uh, the storm, and the disciples ask, who is this? And Mark will let us know that the disciples weren't afraid of the storm, they are afraid of Jesus. You, you know, you're in the boat with this, in, this person with this incredible authority. Uh, so there, Mark says that this, that there was a great wind, then there was a great calm, and after the calm, there was a great fear. After it calms down, they're afraid. I think that's really interesting. So, um, and right after that, the very next thing happens, the, the Gergesenes want Jesus to leave. They're afraid of him. Please, go away. We don't want you here. Now, have you integrated that into your sort of understanding of Jesus, that there were people that were offended and, and kind of afraid of him? Because I'm still working to integrate that into my uh, image of him. Uh, the ministry continues. He heals an unclean woman and he raises a dead girl. And it closes, this phase three closes when the 12 are sent out on their first mission. Uh, that's nine, one through six. They return. I love this part. They return. And Jesus says, come with me to a quiet place and get, get some rest. They go across the lake and there's 5,000 people waiting for him on the other side. And that's when he feeds the 5,000. Okay, so that's phase three. Is this helpful at all? I, I, I want to know the course of his ministry. I don't want it to be this one homogenous thing. I want to see that it, you know, I want to see. Okay, I'll stop. Phase four, uninformed confession and prideful confusion. Come on. If you read these to me, I'd make fun of you. So, <laughs> Uninformed confession. You know who that is. That's going to be Peter, right? And prideful confusion. This begins with Peter's confession, which in Luke, different gospels have different turning points, but in Luke, that's a big turning point. Peter's confession, because that's, it's not until Peter makes his confession that they leave to go to Jerusalem. Okay. Peter makes his great confession. Uh, next, Jesus explains the Messiah in terms that none of his disciples can understand. We've talked about that. And then we have the transfiguration. Again, Jesus tries to explain his coming suffering. They do not understand. And as they're going along, they're afraid to ask him. Now, that is an interesting insight. You know, if you want to, what was it like to be with the 12? Occasionally, they're afraid to ask him things. At one point, Luke says, they're, you know, Jesus says he's going to die and be raised from the dead. And Luke says, as they're, as they're walking to Jerusalem, they're, they're asking themselves, what does being raised from the dead mean? Isn't that interesting? So, <laughs> okay. Uh, and it, it closes with the, the disciples arguing about who's greatest. Don't roll your eyes. You do the same thing. Okay, phase five, the point of no return. That's pretty good. I like that title. Uh, the final journey to Jerusalem begins in 951. Uh, along the way, Jesus meets a Samaritan opposition. See, John shows Jesus, shows Jesus being accepted by the Samaritans, a successful Samaritan uh, ministry. But John, uh, Luke shows him being opposed by the Samaritans. 
Uh, Next, the 72 are sent out on a very successful mission. That's chapter 10. Then we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. I just saw, I've never seen this before. Right after the Samaritans reject him, he tells a parable about a Good Samaritan. Isn't that interesting? Very Very like Jesus, isn't it? See, I would tell the story about a bad Samaritan if it was me. Uh, Next, Martha and Mary are contrasted. That is an absolutely amazing passage. Uh, Tell tell her to help me. That passage, we'll look at it. And Jesus uh, introduces this incredible paradigm shift for women. That it's better for a woman to be studying than it is for her to be working in the kitchen. That's essentially what he's saying. To sit at someone's feet is a metaphor in Judaism for studying. Paul says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. That means I studied with him. So Mary is, he's encouraged. Now, let's not slam Martha. You show up somebody's house with 70 people. You don't want Mary taking care of you. You want Martha taking care of you, right? So let's not put Martha down. Not, and Jesus is not anti-Martha. But uh, Jesus and Mary uh, uh, have this really interesting, uh, intuitive sort of relationship. He's always, he's always uh, standing up for her, which I think is really precious. Um, Next, uh, Jesus, uh, they ask him about prayer, and he gives the short form of the Lord's Prayer. Now, we've already established the fact that Luke is really the gospel of prayer. Jesus prays more often than Luke. He tells stories. He tells uh, parables about prayer. But when he finally prays, it's half of the Lord's Prayer. It's the short form, the form that no one ever prays. No church ever prays that, the half, you know, the, the, the short form, which I think is really interesting. Uh, Next, he encourages his disciples to be shameless when they pray. Uh, the crowd asks for a sign, but he's not going to give them one. And then uh, he pronounces the woes on the Pharisees. And phase six, I don't have all of them, I guess. Do I? No. Phase six, it says a desperate time calls forth a radical new value system. So... I didn't get all the way to the end, but that's how far I got. So there you go. So I got a great idea. Let's actually look at Luke. Let's actually look at the Bible. What a, what a unique idea. Luke 1, 1, 1. Off we go. Buckle up. Many have, taken, uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account. That is the opening phrase of Hippocrates' Uh, great classical work on medicine. So he, he can't not use medical terms, right? He uses the opening phrase from Hippocrates. Okay, Hippocratic oath, that guy. Okay, many have, taken up, uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and that's the word autopsia, the word that we get our word autopsy from. Uh, See, he can't not talk like a doctor. Um, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly, uh, does that mean chronological? uh, chronological? I think so. I think he's concerned about chronology more so than some of the other gospels. Uh, But I won't take a bullet for that. An orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent is a, is a, a, the, a term for a person who's a, a member of a particular class. 
the equestrian class uh, in Rome. We, we know Felix in Acts. Paul addresses him as most excellent. So uh, Theophilus, whoever he was, some people think he's a lover of God. He's just a made-up person, that we're all Theophilus, which I, I think is just kind of a dumb idea. I think he's a real person, uh, and I think he has responsibility, some kind of responsibility in Paul's trial. He's a, he's a high-ranking official, Theophilus, but he has obviously been exposed. He has been catechized. That's the other word he uses. He's been catechized. Um, but now, um, an orderly account, uh, so that you may know for certain the things that you have been, that's the word taught, catechized. Catechismos, okay. So that's, that's, that's the formal opening of this document. And here we go. The ministry of Jesus always begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. What we're going to have are two parallel stories of two miraculous births. And they are, they are strictly parallel. You know, the, they're both named before they're born, the explanation of their names given, their mothers rejoice. You know, it's just, just parallel. And it ends with, you know, and they grew in wisdom and knowledge or something like that. So we'll see that there's a deliberate literary thing here happening in the, in the, the stories of John and, and Jesus. In the time of Herod. Now, uh, Luke gives us, he tells us who was king and who was emperor. But this is not just a fix a time, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., which is when Herod died. It's not just a fixed time, and that's what most of the commentaries will tell you, but it's not. It's to establish a mood. When he says in the days of King Herod, you're supposed to feel a little, little uh, shrivel go down your, a little, what do you call it? Chill go down your spine. Yeah. Chill, yeah, go down your spine. Because Herod was a monster. He was an absolute monster. Um, he, he, he killed you know, he killed most of his family. He killed his wife who actually he loved. He killed his wife who he loved and preserved her body in honey so he could come look at it. I mean, I mean, it's a horror. His life is a horror film. And I won't even tell you how he died, the, the experience of his death. But he, he got what was coming to him. Let me just tell you that. He died a gruesome, excruciating death. So when you hear in the days of King Herod, just like in a minute when you hear in the days of Tiberius, I'll tell you about Tiberius when we get to him, because he's almost as bad as Herod was. It, you know, it's in, in some sense, it's like saying, in the days of Richard Nixon, I mean, I, I hope that doesn't offend you, but you know, the, here we had this leader that not everybody really believed in, you know what I'm saying? That kind of thing. So when he says a name, you're supposed to have this, it's not just to say, ah, oh, 4 BC. Um, so in the days of this horrible person, um, in the days of King Herod, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. David divided the priest, uh, priesthood into 24 divisions. Uh, that's in, um, where's my note? That's in 1 Chronicles 24 if you're interested. Um, and he is, he is, there are lots of priests who live out in the country. This is, he does not live in Jerusalem, right? He lives elsewhere. And he, he, he cast lots to get to, to do this particular service. And there are 14,000 of these kinds of priests in Israel at this point. So this is the only time in his life he's going to do this. I mean, what are the odds? This is the biggest day of his life. He's a priest who's getting to serve in the temple. I showed you that picture of the temple. He's in the, you know, the holy place of that incredible. It'd be like you, know, you and me going into, I don't know, 
the, the capital or something, and I don't know. I, I can't even tell you what, it, what it's like, but it's, it's, it's a big day for Zechariah. Uh, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant from Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but, and that's a big but, but they had no children. Now that, that does not figure, right? That's not how it works. If you're upright and blameless, you have lots of kids, right? But they don't. So there is a problem. Houston, we have a problem. They have no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along uh, in years. There's going to be significant parallels with Hannah and, and Samuel and David and, and this whole story. It, it's not really clear, uh, but they're very parallel stories. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot. We, we make decisions based on Lot because the, the Psalms say God is in the casting of the Lots. So who's going to replace Judas? You know, <laughs> you know, mama needs a new pair of shoes. <laughs> oh, Matthias, you're, you're the 12th, you know, you're number 12. But, you know, that's kind of weird in our, in our thinking. But if you believe God controls the casting of the lots, it makes perfect sense. So they, okay, it's going to be, okay, Abijah, you know, Abijah, okay, now who? Zachariah, okay, you burn incense. There are four, four tasks that they have to do. Um, one is to offer sacrifice. Uh, one is to cleanse the altar, clean the altar off. Three is to burn incense, which is what he's doing. And the fourth is to offer the drink offering. So those are the things that have to be done. So he gets number three. He draws number three. Uh, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now this is symbolic. Uh, incense is a symbol of prayer. What does prayer do? It goes up and it smells good to God. Okay? Our prayers are like incense. And what he's doing symbolically in the temple, the people are doing outside the temple. They're praying. They're in that big court outside the temple praying to God as he's inside the temple representing the people offering incense. Okay? Very cool moment. Um, uh, and when the time for the burning of incense came, here it is. All the assembled worshipers were praying outside. That's what you do. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of, innocence, uh, of incense. What is that? That, my friends, is an eyewitness detail. He's on the right side. Luke interviews eyewitnesses. Okay? When you, when you read a detail like that, that's what you're reading. You're reading an eyewitness detail. It was on the right side of the altar. So we know how the Holy of Holies was set up. So, okay, you, or the holy place. Okay, you're in the Holy of Holies. Okay, your faces are melting right now because you're, you know, Indiana Jones. Okay, so in front of the Holy of Holies, there's a curtain. And so I'm Zechariah. Right here is where I burned the, alt, uh, the incense. The incense altar's here. Right here is the uh, menorah big golden candlestick that the Romans stole. Over here is the table of showbread. Okay, It's dark and it's smoky and he's the only person who's supposed to be in there. And on the right side of the altar of incense, all of a sudden, there's this person. Now what are you going to do? Right? What are you going to do? Uh, Daniel uh, knew Gabriel. Gabriel came to Daniel at one point and said, you know, from the moment you prayed, an answer was given, and I'm here to give you that, the answer you know, from God. That's what Gabriel does. Uh, 
He stands in the presence of, the, of God, and when a, a, a prayer is given up, Gabriel gives you the answer. That's what he does. He and Michael are the only two angels that we know their names, and we know, we know what they do. Michael fights. He's the warrior. But Gabriel answers prayer. And Daniel says he looks like a man. So he's not 10 feet tall with big white, white wings. He apparently kind of looks like a man. But he's not supposed to be in there. So anyway... So on the right side of the altar in smoke and kind of dark, there's this person. When Zechariah saw him, this is Luke, he was startled and gripped with fear. He can't just be startled. And he can't just be gripped with fear. He's startled and gripped with fear. That's Luke. That's how he writes. You can recognize his voice. Okay? That's very Lucan. He was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, and this is the first words that always come from angels' lips, don't be afraid. In the Greek, I like Greek better than the English. In Greek, it's mephobu, uh, no fear. No fear. I like that better. No fear, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear your son. So this is not a virgin birth. It's a miraculous birth, but not a virgin birth. She's going to bear your son. And you are to give him the name John. Yonah. Yonah. And... Uh, he will be, now this is going to happen with Jesus. He's given a name and the prophecy is given of what his life's going to be like. This is what people want Jesus to do when they bring their children to him. Uh, that's what rabbis do. They'll lay a hand on a child and they'll give them a blessing that has a prophetic character to them. That's what they want. That's what Jesus does with little kids. Okay. This, this is the same sort of thing, which I think is really cool. So his name is John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, which is a token of the Nazarite uh, vow. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. There's Luke's interest in the Holy Spirit. Luke, who in Acts 2 is going to tell us about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So he's interested. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the, uh, the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He comes from the place of Elijah, the wilderness. He comes dressed like Elijah, uh, camel's, camel hair goat, or camel skin coat. He eats uh, the diet of Elijah, locusts and honey. The message of Elijah, get ready because the kingdom of God's coming. That's Elijah right there. So he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And again, the question is, how do you make people ready to meet the Lord? You make them aware of their sin, so they repent. That's how you turn the heart of children to the fathers and the heart of the fathers back to their children. You, make, you, you let them realize that they need to repent. And John obviously does a, a, a very good job of this. It's all, it was all going so well. Verse 18 Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Mm, man, it was going so well. I'm an old, but don't roll your eyes. I mean, what is he, 70, 80 years old? And they're, they're barren, you know, this whole time anyway. So don't roll your eyes at him. You'd have said the same thing. I'm an old man, and my wife was well along in years. But what we have to do is trust the fact that that was a faithless question. He should not have asked that. And listen, let me interpret for you the tone of Gabriel's voice. <laughs> I'm Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words. So there's a clear indication of disbelief, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, which I would have loved to have seen. You know, you know, what are the signs, right? So he's making signs, but he still can't say anything. When his time of service was complete, which is one week, that you're, uh, the, you serve for a block, a week at a time, <clears throat> um, he returned home. After this, she gets pregnant, see? So it's the, you know, the biological way. He returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion and I have exhausted the primary sources and I can find no reason for her doing this. This is not typical Judaism, uh, so your guess is as good as mine. She's waiting till she's showing because uh, she's, it's not that she's embarrassed. She's very happy that this has happened to her. But she stays in conclude, seclusion for... Morning sickness. Morning sickness. There you go. <laughs> Fi- finally, a practical answer that I can relate to. Yeah, yeah. I was the one who always had the crackers. Crackers is what we did. Here, eat a cracker. Yeah. So, but she, she stays in seclusion. I wish there was some really cool, you know, Old Testament verse or something from the Talmud. But yeah, she's just throwing up. She's home throwing up. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. <clears throat> so she remains in conclusion. But that five months becomes our, our marker because now it's going to be in the sixth month. And this, it's, it's all told from the standpoint of her pregnancy. Okay, So, so for five months she's in seclusion. And, but this is what she says. The Lord has done this for me. She said, in these days he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. See, that's what her life has been like. You must have done something wrong. My sister lost two babies in 13 months. She had one baby that was born with every birth defect a baby could have, open spine, hydrocephalic, blind, and that baby lived for two months and died. Uh, Thirteen months later, she had another baby, and he was perfect. He was gorgeous. He died two and a half months old of a ruptured appendix. Yeah. This is where all my lament stuff came from. All those lament books and lament, lament music, it started when this happened to my sister. Uh, and someone in her church actually came up to her and said, you must have done something wrong. When a, you, 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 but that's how we think, right? If something bad happens to you, you think, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? See, retributive, retributive justice, we think that's how the world works, and that is not how the world works anymore. So anyway, so anyway, she is so happy that her disgrace uh, has been taken away. So boom, there's, there's block one. Now here's the parallel of Jesus. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of her pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, that hole in the wall that you saw the pictures of, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And you know all about Jewish marriage customs. Uh, um, An engagement is basically the same thing as being married, except you're not living together. Uh, You have to to be divorced to break an engagement. Okay, so this is very serious. She, it, it appears she's done a very wicked thing. Okay, it, she, it appears she's done a very wicked thing, although, of course, we know she didn't. Uh, 
So she, uh, he appears to Joseph, a descendant of David. The, virgin, uh, the virgin's name was Mary, Miriam. It's, it's one of the most popular names in the first century. That's Moses' sister's name, Miriam. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. My note says that's an amazingly ordinary greeting. Greetings. You know, you're highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary, who is a, he, who is a sharp cookie. Let's just say it that way. Mary is a sharp cookie. She went, what in the world does that mean? Mary was troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that might be. But the angel said to her, and here it comes again. Don't be afraid. Mephobu. No fear. That's what Jesus says when he's walking on the water. No fear. No fear. No fear, Mary. Miriam. You have found favor with God, which is what Elizabeth said about herself. I found favor with God. See the parallels? Um, you found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son. You're, named him, you're to give him the name Yeshua. Joshua. Yahweh saves. I mean, what other name could he have had? And the Greek form is Jesus. Okay, you're, good, you're to give him the name Jesus. So Jesus is named before he's even conceived, just like John was named even before he was conceived. Okay? Parallel. And here's the little prophecy that explains his life. He will be great and will be called the son of El Elyon, God Most High. Uh, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. There's our, our, our messianic expectation. See? What the expectation is, it's going to be a Davidic Messiah. He's going to come, he's going to have the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, Mary has a question, but it's not a faithless question. Mary's question is, how can this be? I'm a virgin. You know, that's not a faithless question. That's a very, you know, real practical <laughs> question. You know, I don't know what it's like for you guys up in heaven, but down here... You know, it's two people, you know, not just one person. Um, the angel answered, and I think I, my note says this is a practical yet very uh, uh, gentle description of what's actually about to happen to her. Um, the Holy Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit again, will come upon you and the power of El Elyon, there's El Elyon again, God most high, the God who's above all the other gods, will overshadow you. And that word overshadow is an important word. It's the same word that the Greek Old Testament uses when it describes the Spirit of God hovering over the waters when creation happens. See? So it's a, be it's a beautiful image. You know, it's a beautiful image. So don't be afraid. You're gonna, the, the, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. That's how it's going to happen. Don't be afraid. Okay. Um, he, he will overshadow you. Um, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And here's a little proof. Even Elizabeth, your relative, your relative, what does that mean? That means John and Jesus are related. Is that in your, is that in your brain? They're, they're like cousins somehow. We, we, your relative, we're not sure exactly what, what, that, what that means, but we know they're related. Okay. Just like John, uh, Jesus is related to John who wrote the Gospel of John. They're cousins. Their mothers are sisters. Do you know that? Mary's sister is Salome, John's mother. So there's this kind of cool thing happening. So even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. And this is a joke right here. 
for nothing is impossible with God. That's Genesis 18:14 when Sarah laughed. And the angel said, could have been Gabriel for all I know, is anything impossible for God? So it's kind of a little joke there. Tongue in cheek. Uh, and, and this is, is Mary's immediate response. I am the Lord's servant. Now that, that's all I need to know about Mary. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about this Lord's servant business. The King James, some people are very uh, wedded to, uh, what's, what's King James? Handmaiden of the Lord? Yeah, handmaid of the Lord. Uh, I don't know what the other translations do with it, but let me, ju- let me tell you what the Greek is. Of course, Mary didn't speak Greek anyway. She speaks Aramaic. So this is Luke's kind of translating, you know, what, what Mary, and, and Luke is telling, this is Mary's eyewitness account because he talked to Mary when he was in Ephesus, okay? Um, the, the word, uh, the, the first word is, is uh, doulain. The, the, the Greek word for, basic word for slave is doulos, Okay? The feminine form is Dulane, and that's the word that's here. So it should be translated slave. So she is the slave of the kurios. Now we all know what kurios means. That We usually translate that Lord. But the original meaning, the ancient meaning of kurios is owner, master. So if you're putting the word slave and you know, doulos and kurios together, I'm the slave of the master. That's, that's a better translation. Or even more literal, I'm the slave of the one who owns me. Mary's identity is a slave identity. And that's very Jewish. You know, don't forget, you were slaves in Egypt. Right? So that's a a very Jewish identity, too. But I I think it's an identity that she passes on to Jesus. Because Jesus, what does he do? He washes people's feet. He makes breakfast for people, fixes breakfast after the resurrection, right? That's his identity. Of Philippians 2, 6 through 11, the very first hymn the church ever sang. You know, that's the oldest hymn we know anything about. Who being in very nature God did not uh, uh, see equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a doulos, slave, not servant. A servant has choices. A slave doesn't have choices. A slave gives up their choices, okay? So uh, this is a very special uh, moment, obviously, uh, for all of us. So this is this remarkable woman who we have not revered as we should. We're so afraid of, you know, doing it wrong. We, we haven't given her the credit she deserves. So way to go, Mary. Miriam, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to, to me as you've said. Then the angel left her. So you contrast her. There's our first pair. Here's a religious man who doesn't get it. And here's a woman, a very young woman, who in their culture shouldn't get it, but completely gets it. And Luke is going to do that. As you were reading through, did you see these? He does it again and again. And if it was two or three of them, I'd, I'd say, okay, it's a coincidence. But there's 15 or 20 of them. So uh, the person that should get it doesn't get it. And the person who shouldn't get it always gets it. And that's, here's your, that's your first pair so now we're going to go back to uh, Elizabeth. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah uh, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And those of you who've you know, had babies or you know, husbands who've been with wives who, who have been pregnant, you, you know this happens. Oh, they jump jump and kick and get hiccups and do all kinds of stuff. 
but this baby leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit again. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you bear. And what you need to know is this is also very Jewish, because Jewish prayer is basically blessing things. Uh, Baroka, the, the tractate of the Mishnah that's about prayer is called Bar, uh, the Baroka, the blessings. Uh, and if you're a Jewish person, you learn a special blessing for every situation. Um, and it's a very, very, very uh, Jewish thing. This is very, you know, obviously they're Jews, so <laughs> no big surprise. Uh, Blessed art thou, eternal uh, our God, King of the universe, who, who creates variously formed creatures. That's the prayer you're supposed to say if you see someone who's handicapped. There's a prayer for smelling sweet-scented wood. There are thousands of these prayers. And if you're a good Jewish person, you get a prayer book and you learn all these prayers. But prayer is basically blessing things. We don't do that enough, do we? We don't bless things like we should. So maybe we should take a, a lesson from Judaism. So blessed are you, and blessed is that, that, that zygote, that little you know, few cells, right, in your womb. Uh, and why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord uh, knew uh, circumlocution, the mother of my Lord, should come to me? As soon as your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here she is blessing him. Blessed is she who has believed. See, she looks over Zachariah at this point. <laughs> Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord said to her will be accomplished. So there it is. And now Mary sings. Before I read Mary's, Mary's uh what's referred to as the Magnificat. Let me read you. I'm not going to tell you where this is. Let me read you. See, you tell me if this sounds familiar to you. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horns lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth, for the Lord is, God, is a God of knowledge, and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Reversal. Okay? Strong people get broken, and, and poor people are... Okay. Uh, those who are full hire, uh, those who are full hire themselves out for, f for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. Radical reversal. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. Reversal. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends down, uh, some down to Sheol. He raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He sets them with uh, noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards his, the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king, and he will lift up the horn of his anointed. That is the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. When she, she finds out she's going to have Samuel. That's the mother of Samuel. Isn't that ringing bells? 
So once again, you, now listen to me. And here's Mary's. My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The, that her, her song was all about the poor. And Mary sing, Mary's singing the same song. Um, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arms. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And here's the radical reversal. He brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. Hannah just sang that, right? Um, uh, he's helped his servant Israel, <coughs> remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as, as he said to our father. Mary stayed with Elizabeth uh, for about three months, and then she returned home. So at nine months, she goes home. But do you see how elegant these connections are? Between the Old Testament and the, and the New, people are sort of singing the same songs. I guess the same Holy Spirit is, is inspiring them to, to sing. So here's John's birth. Um, this is when everything starts coming true. It's all been promises up till now, but now, now is when the ball really gets rolling. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. And great mercy has to be hesed. Great mercy, hesed. And they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. So here's the circumcision of John. We're, all going to, we're also going to see the circumcision of Jesus. So there's parallel. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said, there, there's no one in your relatives who has that name. We, this is, we don't do this, right? We don't do this. Then they made signs to his father. He's probably gotten pretty good at it by now. Uh, to find out what he would uh, like to name this, the child. He asked for a prescription tablet. And there's that word. That's the technical medical term for prescription tablet. He asked for, asked for a prescription tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Is John. <clears throat> Immediately... And I don't understand exactly how, but that word immediately is a medical word. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now Zachariah is going to sing a song. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit again. And he prophesied. Praise the, Lord, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show hesed mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. And this is a big one for him, I think. And to enable us to serve him without fear. You know, you're a priest. You're always afraid of doing it right. And now I can serve him without being afraid. Uh, let me read my note. He had often feared in the temple uh, the, princi uh, the principal difference between him and Mary. In the Old Testament times, people who knew God better 
priests, etc., were more afraid of him. In the New Testament, it's opposite. Uh, if you if you don't, Brennan Man used to say, if you don't have to be afraid of God, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Isn't that a great? If you don't have to be afraid of God, you don't have to be afraid of anything. So there's this. I'm not saying we're giving up on godly fear, but uh, now says Zach, sing Zechariah, I can serve him without fear. He really is going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to redeem his people. It's all happening, and I'm going to sing about it in holiness and righteousness before him all our day. And you, my child, so you've, you know little eight-day-old baby. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of El Elyon. One of my nagging questions is, why at the Nativity, and it's this way in all the Gospels, it's, it's always El Elyon. It's not El Shaddai or any of those other names of God. It's always El Elyon, the God who's above all the other gods. So there's this focus on El Elyon. Um, uh, for you will go on ahead... Uh, before, before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy. And that's got to be Hesed. Tender mercy has to be Hesed. Because of the tender mercy of our God uh, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those uh, living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. And here, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he, until he publicly appeared to where am I? Israel. <laughs> I was looking for the parallel statement. There's a, there, there, there will be a parallel statement um, uh, about, uh, about, yeah, and, and here, here's a 2, 240. And the child, this is Jesus, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So strictly parallel the stories of Jesus and, uh, and John. So we'll stop right there. Um, so we, shall we start doing questions? We're, we're, we're uh, gee, we're five minutes early. Yeah, here, here comes the mics. See, I will not go over time. I will not do that to you. I'm not that guy. See, I started in the music business opening for people, and they would say, play 20 minutes. So I play 10 minutes, right? And they love you for that, right? Yes, you said he sang, and um, Mary sang, and also later um, that we say the angels sang, the Bible says said. Is there a Greek word that means sang? No, no, and and to to be precise, it doesn't say they sang, but what I would say is it's lyrics, it's lyrical. No, strictly speaking, we don't know if they sang this or not. But 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 in in the synagogue, you know, we sing scripture. You know, when when passages come up, you you chant, you chant. So I think there's a good chance. You know what my my academic reason is? I really want it to be this way. I want them to. I, be I do too. I'm a musician. <laughs> and and to and to know that the angels said when Jesus was born, yeah. that just ruins it for me. To I know. Me, me they too. They have to sing. Me too. But but strictly speaking, if we're going to be true to the text, in all those instances, it says they said that. But I, I still say they're lyrics, so I think they're chanting them. Yeah. Thank you want to hear a synagogue chant? Uh, I, this is a melody that Jesus would have known. Uh, Oh, 
That's a first century synagogue chant. That's a melody. So it would have been a melody kind of like that, that kind of open fifth sort of Jewish clarinets, you know, fiddler on the roof kind of thing. <laughs> this, this goes back to last night a bit. I've, I've been thinking about the, uh, the idea that Luke's gospel may have been a cover letter uh, for a defense for Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd, I'd come across that just in the last year as an idea, and I, it's an oh, interesting good. idea. I've been, and I've been thinking about Romans as well, that Paul writing the epistle to the Romans, there's definitely an apologetic for the Christian faith there as well, mm-hmm. writing to the capital of the empire, oh, yeah. chapter 13, really spelling it out, hoping, I think, that, that the emperor will overhear that we're good people, we pray for you, you know, we, we believe in civil government. Anyway, yeah. I'm, so this is just a, something I'm bouncing around, but are we overlooking in our own age in the Gospels a, a source of apologetic for the Christian faith in our day? Uh, and should we be using the Gospels, the Gospel text itself, uh, as an apologetic for our faith? That's yeah. just something I'm toying with. Yeah, and w- w- one of my questions is why we use it more. Because I, I think that's why we're so... And I was thinking about that this morning at 4 o'clock, about the whole Pauline versus a gospels thing. And I, I, and I think one of the reasons is, because I was looking something up in Paul, I mean, the, the, he's giving you answers to questions. He's dealing with things. I mean, that, what is Paul doing? He's dealing with problems, right? He's not building a systematic theology. There's one problem in Rome. There's another problem in Thessalonica. And he's, and he's dealing with problems. And uh, I think, I, I don't want to call it, it's, not, it's God's word, so I'm not going to say quick fix, but he's fixing things. And I think we're, we're attracted to that more than we are this, you know, intricate story of the Gospels that we have to engage with and, and really listen to, you know, with our imaginations. I think it's a lot more work in one sense. But I think, I think you're right. I think the, the best apologetic for Christianity is the life of Jesus. I mean, come on. Absolute lordship. Of course, Paul's going to back all that up. You know, Paul, one of my problems is I'm always, I talk about, you know, the high Christology in John, and I say, well, that happens because John had preached it for, you know, 50 years, 60 years, and, and he develops his high Christology. Well, Paul has a pretty high Christology, you know, from the get-go, even before the gospel. So there goes that argument. That doesn't leave this room, by the way. At the breakfast table this morning, the question came up, who wrote the Talmud, and when was it written? Wow. <laughs> Speaking of Luke, um, I, I'm actually reading a book on the Talmud right now, so I have, I have some, somewhat of an answer. No one person wrote the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud is composed of big blocks, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Tosefta. Uh, we know that the Mishnah, which is the collected saying of the rabbis from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D., that was put together by a guy named Judah. It was, it was finally codified like at 200 B.C. around there. I, may, I think that's right. Yes, I am right, 200, 200 A.D., 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. But then, uh, the, and then the Gemara is a, is a commentary on that, and then the Tosefta is, a, is, a, is another commentary. I don't know if it's exactly how it's stacked, but 38 volumes. So no one person wrote the Talmud, lots of people. When you read through the Talmud, they're quoting different rabbis and different sources all the time. Yeah, so it's a collective thing. Very interesting study, the study of the Talmud. Some of it is mind-numbingly boring, but some of it is really interesting. So, yeah, that's the Talmud. Yes? Could we say that Zechariah was asking for a sign and Mary was asking for an explanation? And my second question is, 
Wait, wait, wait. All Let's right. talk about that first. Um, he's asking for a sign, which you're not supposed to do, right? A wicked and adulterous generation. And she's asking for an explanation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, how can I be sure of this? Yeah, I think that's a good, that, that's good. Okay, second question. Second question. <laughs> Is there something to the idea that he was to be called the son of the most high as opposed to he was the son? I don't no. know if there's a Jehovah Witness kind of a thing in there. I don't know. I don't know if that's the, if that's, I don't, I don't understand that if that's an issue with Jehovah's, is that an issue with Jehovah's Witnesses? So he's called that, but he's not that? Well, they consider Jesus to be the son of God. Uh-huh. A, a, a creation of God rather yeah. than God himself. Yeah, yeah. So to be called the son of God, is there something that Luke is trying to imply there? In, in response to what? I don't know. I still don't understand. It, is Luke saying he wasn't, he wasn't the birth son of God, but he will be thought to be or called the son of God as if that would be sort of an, a way we can understand who this Jesus was? Well, yeah, but I, I don't, I'm not so sure that that one word, the whole thing hinges on that one word. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, he is designated the son of God. Is he, is he before, you know, was, is he from the beginning? Ab- you know, absolutely. There's a whole bunch more scripture that says that. I wouldn't hang it just on this one. And you're, I know you're not doing that. But, uh, yeah, <clears throat> as opposed to he'll be, he, he will be or he'll be called. That's the, I, I don't, I, don't th- I think you're putting too much, I can see why people would try to build a, a false argument on that, though, but I don't think Luke is saying that. No, Luke has a high Christology. So, I, I, yeah, I've never heard that question before. That, it's interesting, in Peter, you, you have this thing about Peter, Peter's, and even Matthew. Uh, Matthew's not named Matthew. Matthew's called Matthew, because Matthew's not his name. Uh, it's a nickname Jesus gives. Peter is not named Peter. He's called Peter, because it's not his name. So, so when you said that, okay, I have some, but that's not, I don't think that applies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two, quick, two quick questions from the first 18 verses. In uh, verse 2 where it says they were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, does that mean Jesus or something else? No, word in general applies to Jesus, I think. Yeah. So that's probably, okay. And then in the, uh, the introduction of John's mission in verses 17 and 17, uh, where it quotes Malachi 4, mm-hmm. 5, and 6, What's the significance of that? Obviously, Malachi 4, 5, and 6 were the last two verses of the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, they're the last two verses of our Old Testament. They're not the last two verses. And, and First and Second Chronicles are the last books in the, in the Hebrew Bible, so that doesn't work. But um, I think I, that's a good question. I think that what, what I think of when I hear the prophecy of John, his ministry is, I'm going to bring people together. When, G, when they asked Jesus about his ministry, what does he say? I've come to divide people. And it's almost kind of part of that scandal of the gospel. A mother against her daughter, a, father, a, mother against, a mother-in-law against her daughter. I mean, he's, he extends it on out. And that's what I hear when I hear that. Uh, it's, it's the result of repentance. People turn back together. But then Jesus comes in and Jesus divides. And that's a hard, that's a hard thing to hear. Does that, does that help? Okay, nobody asked me any questions that are going to make me wake up at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning. Okay. <laughs> Not like, like, no trick questions like, where do babies come from or anything like that? Okay. <laughs> um, I know we're not studying Hebrews, but in Hebrews 9, 4, the altar of incense is behind the uh, second curtain rather than in the holy place. Yeah. 
Uh, what's your question? Is, is why, it, why does the author of Hebrew put it in? I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not the guy to answer that question. I don't know. I don't know. Sorry. Now, you know, it's, you know what that means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be this cranky old guy by the end of the week. This is sort of an aside, but you mentioned that the Pharisees thought that there were going to be two messiahs. No, no, no. I said it, one, one of the strains, the uh, Samaritans said that there were going to be two messiahs. Why did they think that? Uh, one's going to be a priest and one's going to be a king. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. But, the, and, but that, what, I, what I just want to do is present how fragmented... Nobody knew who the Messiah was going to be. But the center was he's going to be a king like David and he's going to kill the Romans. He's going to set up his kingdom. That seemed to be the most common agreement in, in the context of the fact that nobody agreed on anything. I think it's very important that we understand the context of Jesus' ministry and, and that, that, that fragmentation. Because he comes in and he, I mean, he's redefining things for people and he's, you know, he's, he's taking a stand against oral law you know, uh, so, which is really a stand against the Pharisees. Um, so, yeah, so nobody knows who the Messiah is. And, and what, so what happens? He'll, occasionally he'll do something and he'll say, don't tell anybody. Or they'll even be, well, when Peter makes his confession to the Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody. Now, that kind of doesn't make any sense until you realize he doesn't want them saying that he's the Messiah until they understand what the Messiah means. Because if they go blabbing around that he's the Messiah, the Romans are going to come and kill all of them. Because that's what the Romans do to Messiahs. Okay? Uh, I, I didn't mention it, but... Um, oh, no, I will mention it when we get to the birth of Jesus. I'll, I'll skip that, yeah. I have another bit of, bit of meaningless trivia. Yeah. You presented me with a real paradox this morning. Mm. Um, when you said that the uh, apostles, um, the disciples, were afraid of Jesus, I always thought they had a close and loving relationship. And you see Jesus being very loving and very open. He took the children um, on his lap. Mm -hmm. And when he saw the, um, the young man who had died and his mother walking behind him, he had great compassion mm -hmm. and love and raised him from the dead. Mm -hmm. And he um, healed a Gentile woman uh, who was bleeding, even though she was not of the Jewish faith. And he came. Oh, is the, the woman, is she Gentile? This woman. Well, he said, he says something about. No, he, uh, said, he, the, call, he the calls her daughter. Under the table. Oh, that, the, oh yeah, that's uh, the de demon-possessed woman. Uh, their child mm -hmm. is demon-possessed. But anyway, I know what you're saying now. Oh, okay. Yeah, Syrophoenician uh, woman. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so to, to, to hear that. that the disciples were fearful of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Gives me a whole different perspective. Maybe I've been reading the Bible according to the churchy way. <laughs> well, you know, that's for you to decide. But but they're they're and Jesus is 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 more compassionate, more loving than than even we can imagine. So I I, I totally uh, he 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 heals people when he when it works against his agenda because he he can't not. His heart can't not go out to someone. I mean, uh, but, we, but we do have, we have them afraid of him. We have him uh, after he comes down the, from the Mount of Transfiguration. And every time I read this, I, I, I tell Jesus, you know, you really hurt my feelings when you said that. He comes down from the mountain and he says, how much longer do I have to put up with you? And I think he's, he's 
frustrated because they, they had already healed people and here's this, this child they can't heal. And uh, so I think you got the whole, I mean, d- definitely in the temple, he is ticked off. He's angry. And why is he angry? Because the Gentiles don't have a place to pray anymore. That's why he's mad. They built this marketplace where the Gentiles are supposed to be praying. Uh, so um, I think he's got this full range. I think he's tired. I think he gets frustrated. I mean, he's tempted in every way just like we are, so he had to have been tempted to be mad, to lose his temper. Um, and, but I don't think he ever sinned. I mean, obviously, that's part of his perfection. Yeah. But yeah, amazingly compassionate when it costs him. When it really costs, he's still compassionate. So, yeah. The story the lady brought up down there takes me back about 10 years. My wife and I were decision guides at the church that we are members of. And they told us, now, if these kids don't seem right or whatever, you just uh, don't let them go forward. Well, yeah, they did that to me when I was so a kid. So this lady says that he took the little children on his laps and blessed them. But before he did that, he became indignant with those that were trying to prevent the children from coming right. to him. Because he said, you need to be like these little ones instead of getting indignant with right. them. So he had that edge on him too. Yeah. Well, and just look at what he's dealing with. He's, look at all the different personality he's dealing with. I mean, he's, he's there to, to preach the good news, say the, that, the gospel, that the kingdom's coming. That's his, he says that's his principal ministry. But obviously, he's, he can do miracles, and, he's, he, and he'll do that even when it works against him. He'll stop and take time with, his, with, the, with the children, even when the disciples know he's got no time for this. He's more important than this, right? That's basically what they're saying, because our importance is linked to his importance. So no, he's too important for that. But um, I, I think you don't get Jesus until you see him. Um, one of my least favorite images of Jesus is Jesus covered up with people. I want him to be walking around through the fields in Galilee and, and saying beautiful things. And, you know, and, and he did. That was part of his ministry. They did, they did that. In fact, in Mark, they go to the wilderness a lot. But uh, there, was a, there was a scene in the movie Jesus Christ Superstar where there are all these hands like this, and Jesus is in the middle, and he just gets covered up, and he just disappears in the midst of all these people. And I hate that image. But it's a pretty biblically accurate image. He's just covered up with people. I mean, 5,000 men, so 15,000, 20,000 people. I've got a picture of a crowd of 20,000 people if you want to see what that looks like. Because that's a good thing to have, a good image to have in your head. It's a bunch of people. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. But I want to understand him at that level. What frustrated him? What amazed him? You know, because what am I doing that's frustrating him? I've got a pretty good idea. (laughs) Yeah. I had um, an interesting thought that I hope is true. Um, I lost a baby through miscarriage. Then I lost a year later a child that went full term. So I kind of understand Elizabeth, I think, from a perspective. And did I anyone think, come to you and say, what did you do wrong, or was that implied? I have a whole plethora of things okay. I could tell you that were okay. stupid that people said to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, okay. hang on to um, that anger. That's a good thing. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I thought about when I realized that she kept it secluded is she waited until... Um, the point in her pregnancy where she could really feel movement. Mm -hmm. And there was not that place of 
wondering if this is really going to happen or not. Interesting. I personally think the reason that Zachariah had um, spiritual duct tape across his mouth was because when he went back to her, he could not speak words of doubt mm. into her pregnancy. Wow. And that she was guarded and protected from him, um, causing her not to have that joy of knowing that she truly had God's blessing upon her. Wow. Well, you are uniquely qualified to understand her life situation. That, that's the best thing I've ever heard on the five months. That's, that's, I'm going to use that like I thought of it. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking about it, and I think it's really, no. No, but that, that's, that, thank you, I'm not, I'm not, I'm being silly, but thank you for that. You, okay. How are we on time? Five minutes? Yeah, okay. This is part question, part observation, but it just strikes me in looking again at the Magnificat, how politically revolutionary that, ding, ding. that would have been in that time and how difficult it is for us today in America to relate to what she's saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you said that for the first time, I realized that the other passage in, in, uh, in I think, chapter 10, Jesus, full of, Holy, of joy through the Holy Spirit, says, I praise you, Father, that you've revealed these things, that, that whole kind of thing. He's, he's kind of singing about the same thing she was singing about, radical, what the theologians call radical reversal. The world really is being turned upside down. The bottom rail's on the top now. And that is, that has, that has implications. Now, it, and, but the implications are, I think, where the politicians get it wrong. The implications are I let go of power, right? You know, I raise people up. I don't use people to get more power for myself. As you mentioned, uh, regarding this taking place in the time of Herod. Yeah. So, you know, all the oh. power of Rome and its... its um, all of its efforts to maintain power, and then this little Jewish girl saying, here's what's happening. Just yeah, yeah. The least likely person to have any impact on society, and it's her, yeah. <laughs> um, back to Elizabeth's seclusion. At her advanced age, how and when did she know she was pregnant? So there, there's a time delay there because she wouldn't have the obvious signs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I, I do like the idea that she's being careful. Yeah. Because I'll, trust me, I have exhausted the literature. There is no Jewish custom of being in seclusion until... As, you know, like uh, the, the, the detail when Mary gets pregnant, it says Joseph didn't have any union with her. That is not Judaism. That's not law. He doesn't have to do that. But he, but he doesn't, you know, so, yeah. You had mentioned um, Zechariah being an eyewitness. And you had also mentioned yesterday that Luke and Mark, mothers, traveled with Jesus, right? Yes. Therefore, they wait, wait, were Wait, 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 not Luke. Uh, John and Mark's mothers. Well, yeah. Luke would have been young too, though. If he's traveling with Paul in those later days, mm -hmm. he would have been probably a child during that time. Yeah, I think he's young. I think you're right. So did they travel with Jesus? Did the, did the children travel with the mothers as they went along with Jesus? We, we don't know. We, you know. we see Mark in, the, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, but Mark lives in Jerusalem. 
So we don't, I don't think there's any precedent for that. I don't know of any place where you could say that, all, that this group of women that travel with Jesus have their children their with kids. them. So I'm curious how Zechariah, I mean, how Luke might have witnessed, um, interviewed Zechariah. Yeah. Well, he could have gotten it secondhand, but, but um, I like to think he, he, spoke, he spoke to someone maybe, maybe um, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how he gets it. But, but when, whenever there's a, the detail, that's, comes, that's coming from an eyewitness. So, yeah, he got that secondhand probably because he dies, Zechariah dies, and Luke's young. I see what you're saying now. Yeah, I don't have, a, I don't have an easy answer for that. You're messing, you're messing with my system. 